something positive to happen, and it didn't, right? You ever had that moment where something good, you look at this, something good should have happened, like a much-deserved award uh, given to a student-athlete at the end of the year, and it doesn't show up. Or uh, applause from the audience at the end of one of those really dynamic movie, movies in a theater, right? You're sitting there and you're going, man, this was great, and nobody's applauding. Maybe it was uh, gratitude or lack of it from a family member when you picked out the perfectly selected gift. And you give it to them, it's like, oh, thank you. Or perhaps it's simply ecstatic joy um, from a family after the dramatic saving of a child's life, and there's not a zip of crickets. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're all set for this powerful emotional response, and there's nothing that happens, and there's this feeling of letdown, like, where'd it go? Why did people miss this? If you've ever felt like that, you will identify with the story of Native American Olympic athlete Jim Thorpe. He's been called the world's greatest Olympic track and field athlete. How many of you have heard of Jim Thorpe? Can I just see your hands? This may be a generational thing too, but it doesn't look like it. Okay, well, that's a good thing. But 111 years ago, Jim Thorpe competed in the 1912 Summer Olympics in Sweden in both the pentathlon and the decathlon. So this is 15 incredibly demanding, highly competitive sporting events over the course of two weeks. What he accomplished on that track was extraordinary. And yet, he is relatively unknown today by most sports fans, unless they bought a box of Wheaties, right? In 2001, he showed up on the box of Wheaties. 2001, he competed in 1912. They started doing this in 1958, putting the athletes on the very front cover. If you look at photographs of him at that time, as we saw earlier, he's a pretty ripped athlete, which was unusual for athletes of the, in that day in the Olympics. He's more like a modern athlete. He had a 42-inch chest, 32-inch waist, and 24-inch thighs. So if you think about it, together his thighs were bigger than his chest. This guy was incredibly built. Bill Mellon, who's co-founder of the International Society of Olympic Historians, and he's a consultant statistician with the International Olympic Committee, believes that his, this 1912 performance of Jim Thorpe established him as one of the greatest athletes of all time. He wrote this in his notes. To me, it's not even a question. Thorpe was number one in four Olympic events in 1912, placed in the top 10 in two more, a feat no modern athlete has accomplished. Not even the sprinter and long jumper Carl Jew uh, Lewis, who won nine Olympic gold medals between 1984 and 1996. People just don't do that. Now, Thorpe attended a government-run school called Carlisle. It was uh, a school for Indian uh, industrial activities. It was in Pennsylvania. And one day, as he was attending from 1904 to 1913, so he was actually still attending the school when he competed in the Olympics, he was watching some upperclassmen doing the high jump. And so he said, hey, could, could I give it a try? The bar was set at five foot nine, he was five foot eight. He cleared it wearing his work boots, overalls, and work shirt. <laughs> the next morning, the track and field coach and football coach called him into his office. This was a Glenn Pop Warner. So if you've ever played Pop Warner, this was his coach. 
And they called Jim into the office, and Jim comes in concerned. He did something wrong, and he says, well, son, you've only broken the school high school uh, high jump record. That's all. <laughs> if you ever lettered in a high school sport, you'll be impressed by this. Thorpe went on to break other records at Carlisle in football, baseball, lacrosse, hockey, handball, tennis, boxing, and ballroom dancing. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to swing around with him on the uh, dance floor? The morning the Olympic decathlon competition began in 1912, it was pouring rain. The tracks of those days were not the graphite-type tracks we have today. The first event of the day was the 100-meter dash, and Thorpe splashed his way down to an 11.2-second time. Now, that time was not equaled at the Olympics for 36 years. That's impressive. On the start of the second day, they couldn't find his running shoes. So Pop Warner scrounged around and found two mismatched shoes, different sizes, gave them to Jim for the rest of his decathlete activities. That day, he was in the high jump, won first place. Later that afternoon, one of his favorite events, 110-meter hurdles, Thorpe blistered the track in 15.6 seconds, again, quicker than anyone would run it for another 32 years, in mismatched shoes. The final day of the competition, Thorpe placed third and fourth in the events in which he was most inexperienced, pole vault and javelin. When he was in the Olympic tryouts with javelin, he didn't know you had to run with the javelin and throw it. He stood there <laughs> and qualified for the Olympics. <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to watch this? The last event, 1,500-meter run, this is a metric mile, and it is a leg-burning monster after he has competed in nine other events over a course of two days. He's still running in his mismatched shoes. He ran it in four minutes, 40.1 seconds. That's faster than anyone would run it in 1948, 52, 60. In fact, it wasn't equaled until 1972, 60 years later. Jim's dazzling physical demonstration, despite that, that same year, the International Olympic Committee did the unthinkable. They stripped Jim of all of his medals and struck his records out of the books the same year he had won them. Everyone expected a ticker tape parade for Jim. Everyone thought he would get multiple advertising deals. They thought there would be global acclaim for this Native American Indian because of what he had accomplished. Instead, he has handed defamation and obscurity. And it wasn't until 1985, 1984, that the IOC finally agreed, through a mass of mailings and letters and fans and family writing to them, they finally agreed we will list him as a co-champion in the 1912 Olympic events, but we will not note his times and we will not note his wins continuing debasement. Folks, this is no small thing. This is one of those moments where we expect applause, thunderous applause, and acclaim, and wonder at what he's accomplished. And instead, he has turned in more to a footnote and than an exclamation mark. So if we can identify with that, we will identify with this passage in Malachi chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, in fact, I know you do. 
would you turn, them to, turn in them to Malachi chapter 1, where Malachi talks about the greatness of God that has been debased and dismissed by the priests of his day. And folks, this, this is something that can happen in the hearts of modern-day Christians and churches, where we forget the greatness of God. And we act as though he is a petty athlete on the world stage, in fact, a forgotten athlete on the world stage. Malachi tells us this morning, starting in verse 6, that our God is worthy of honor and reverence. Let me read for you out of the ESV. Verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if then I am a master, where is my fear? Where is my reverence and respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Malachi uses two everyday illustrations of honor and respect, things that would be just naturally given. And he drives home his point using these, and he says there is an honor due to a great dad, and there is respect due to an amazing boss. Now, I've been very privileged in life to have an amazing dad, and I've had a lot of good bosses. In fact, a couple who have been great bosses. And, and as I listen to this, these illustrations, uh, I don't know how your relationships have been with those two types of individuals, but in having a great dad and a good boss, I feel it's been right and important for me to treat them well, to be respectful of their wishes, what is it they're asking me to do, to quickly respond to their requests, to honor them for the ways that they have loved me and treated me and respected me and trusted me. And the last thing in the world I want when I'm responding to them is for them to think I dislike them. For them to think that I'm ignoring them or I'm placating them or gaslighting them. But this is exactly how the people in Malachi's day are treating God. In fact, notice in the text, it is the priests, the very ones who should have been setting the bar high with regard to honoring God and respecting him, but they're at the front of the line dissing God all the time. Look at verse 6b, we just read it. The Lord of hosts says this to you, O priests, who despise my name. They had become so influenced by the world's standards around them. They had become so tired of the religious duties surrounding the worship of God. They had become so desensitized to the greatness of God that they were shocked by this accusation. Notice their reply. But you say, what? What? You've got to be kidding. How have we despised your name? How have we dragged it through the mud? How have we treated you with disrespect? How have we looked disdainfully down our noses at you, O oh God? Why, we've been bringing our sacrifices like you've asked. We've been showing up for worship services as you require. We're telling about people about you as you command. Man, we have not missed a beat in our duties. Can you hear the stunned surprise of these men as Malachi lays out this accusation of God. But their problem was, was not whether they were doing their job, it was how they were doing their job. Notice how God drills down on this problem in verse 7. He says, you despise my name by offering polluted food on my altar. 
Now, the Mosaic law was crystal clear about the kinds of animals that should be brought to be sacrificed to God. And you see them like in Deuteronomy 15.21 that says, but if it, the sacrifice, has a defect such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Leviticus 22.22 says, those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer it to the Lord your God nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar of God. But their frustrations with God not showing up when they thought he should, remember last week, the eroding influences of the surrounding cultures on their thinking had dimmed their memories of God's clear, clear commands. It had uh, devalued their awareness of, of God's greatness, and it had uh, diluted their passion for serving him well. And that leads us to Malachi's next point. Notice in verses 7 uh, through 8. He says, But you say, How have we polluted you? And the answer is by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. You might underline that in your text or write to the side in your notes, despised. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, that you offer blind animals in sacrifice. And notice God's comment about that. Is that not evil? He doesn't say, is that not a poor substitute? He says, isn't that evil? And, and when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? That's a rhetorical question, says the Lord of hosts. The table in this passage is the metaphor that God uses for the place where God meets with man for fellowship. Uh, we find in verse 7, he refers to it as the altar. And today, we have go-to places for fellowship with each other, don't we? We can go to uh, Benjurong Thai, or we can go to Nico Nico Sushi, or In-N-Out, or Starbucks. We have all of our go-to places for fellowship. Well, for the people of God, the temple and the altar was the place of fellowship. This is where they would come before a holy God with a perfect sacrifice, and their sins would be covered over. It's so interesting, the Old Testament idea of atonement that we think of in the New Testament, it was a little different. The Hebrew word for atonement was kafar, which meant to cover over, like you would be covering a stain on the floor with a rug or a carpet. It was just to cover it over temporarily. The life in the blood, that life covered the death of our sins in the Old Testament. And so every time this perfect sacrifice was given, that perfect blood, by no blemishes at all, would, would cover from God's sight the sin. So verse 7 tells us that this place of fellowship is the altar. We could then approach a holy God because we had a perfect sacrifice. In fact, this was the only place you could meet with God perfectly, was at the altar. And this is such a beautiful picture of Jesus for us. Because, in fact, I believe this Old Testament standard is actually a type, a picture of what Jesus would be for us. So you have an Old Testament perfect lamb sacrificed to cover over sins, and in the New Testament, you have the unblemished Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus just doesn't cover your sins and say, well, we'll deal with them later. He says, let me remove them from you because of the perfection of my sacrifice. One commentator wrote it this way. The Old Testament sacrifices were a foreshadowing of the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
The only way we could be reconciled to a holy and perfect God was with a holy and perfect offering, which we would not have had if Jesus was not without sin. Peter declares for you, no, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And there's the connection between the imagery of this perfect sacrifice and our perfect sacrifice, and they are connected. And the author concludes with this, indeed, it was the sinless blood of Christ alone that was able to bring peace between God and mankind. And with this reconciliation, we can be holy in God's sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Thus, what was lost at the fall, that intimate fellowship with God, what was lost at the fall was given back at the cross through one man, the sinless Jesus Christ. So God has always demanded perfect sacrifice, the best of what we can give. Jesus gave that to God on our behalf, his perfect life. And Malachi says to these people and to us, you should be bringing things to God that end up on the perfection end rather than the defamed and deformed end. Don't bring stuff that is second class to God. Think about the word despise for a minute. Hopefully you underlined it or in some way marked it. It means to raise the head loftfully and disdainfully to look down one's nose at someone else. So I'd like to have you take just a moment, turn to your neighbor, and give them your best disdainful look. Now, doesn't, doesn't that feel bad, right? Some of you are going, man, they've got it down. They've been practicing that one. Malachi says to these priests, you are doing that to God. You're looking down at God, disdainfully, scornfully, treating him as though he is to be abhorred and disdained. This is the face we offer a cockroach-infested motel room. <laughs> this is the face we give an overcooked steak in a restaurant. It is the face of a rental car with an overpowering scent of cigarette smoke. It's the face that we look at a backed-up sewer in our home. All right? Folks, the scripture uses this word to describe Esau's face when he despised his birthright. It uses this same phrase to talk about King David's heart when he despised the word of God and sinned with Bathsheba. It describes Goliath's face as he looked at David and disdained his youth. One Old Testament commentator puts it this way. What does sacrifice reveal? What, what does this sacrifice in this passage reveal? Our sacrifices for God. Not a selfish seeking for favor, but a soul's estimate of the one to whom the gift is offered. This is what sacrifice should reveal, the soul's estimate of the one to whom the gift is offered. In the past, he writes, a sacrilege was always thought to be breaking into, defacing, stealing from, or damaging a church. That used to be sacrilege. That is not so here in Malachi. Sacrilege is coming into the presence of God and giving something which costs you nothing because you think God is worth nothing. God looks for the giving at his altar of a gift that costs something. He concludes, men are perpetually bringing into the Christian church the things they do not need themselves. 
So let's pause for a moment and reflect. How am I doing in offering God my best? That has been something I have had to ask myself this week. And I'll be honest with you, I don't always do the best of what I have. In my time, in my energy, in my emotions, in my service, in my tithes, in my offerings. And do I look forward to sacrificing my best to God or do I disdain the opportunity? Which has greater value to me, me or God? So here are three standards of sacrifice by which we should test our worship and service to God. Number one, are we giving to God first? The first of your time, the first of your energy, the first of your heart, the first of your finances and resources. Are we giving to God first? Secondly, are we giving God our best? Is this the very best that I can put out there for God? And thirdly, are we offering God a sacrifice that costs me something? Otherwise, is it a sacrifice? Or is it just kind of a nod? Notice what happens in verse 8 when we bring less than the best. God says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And you, when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So despising God, which is holding back from him the best, bringing things to him that you say, well, God, you're okay, but I've got more important things and better things to concern myself with. This is not just bad worship practice. This is pure evil. Francis Chan wrote in his book, Crazy Love. Some of you have read this book, page 91. The priests of Malachi's day thought their sacrifices were sufficient. They had, they had spotless animals, but they, they chose to keep those for themselves and give their less desirable animals to God. They assumed God was pleased because they had sacrificed something. God described this practice as evil, he writes. Leftovers are not merely inadequate from God's point of view. They're evil. So he says, let's stop calling it a busy schedule. I'm too busy to bring God the best. Or bills, well, I've got too much debt to give God the best. Or forgetfulness, I forgot to give God the best. It's called evil, Chan writes. Think of it this way. Would you ever give a thrift store purchase to your boss at her birthday party? Now, most of what I own, clothing-wise, is from thrift stores. We love the excitement of going to a thrift store and finding that perfect thing, right? At a price, you can go, whoa, that was great. So there's nothing wrong with that, but would you ever go to your boss's birthday party with something you found at the thrift store? Here you go, man. Would you ever bring a dumpster dive find to a friend's fifth wedding anniversary? Would we ever proudly take a beautiful girl to Roadkill Cafe on the first date? Would you ever be driving down the road, you see that dead skunk in the middle of the road, you hop out with a shovel, you pick it up, and you head to your mother-in-law's and say, hey, I brought dinner. <laughs> when I was in high school, there was a popular song some of you might remember. It was called Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. We got a dead skunk in the middle of the whole road. Stinking into high heaven. I don't remember the rest of the song, but it was on the charts for weeks. And I'm going, now I look back, why? 
<laughs> yep, those would not be impressive gifts. And Malachi challenges us as he did his people, and he says, why would you ever give a gift like this to God? The leftovers, secondhand stuff, ever. So how do we correct this kind of thinking and behavior? Look at the third point. He says in verses 9 and 10, the cure is to entreat or retreat. Verse 9, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And he says to them, look, either got to entreat God's favor by giving him the best or just retreat from worshiping at all. Just close the door, lock them. There's no middle ground in this equation. And I'll be honest with you, that may seem like an extreme reaction to not giving God our best, but either God is great and mighty and deserving of our full and unreserved worship, or we should just lock the doors to church and go our separate ways. God doesn't tolerate anything in between. He is a great and mighty king. This is why Lisa and I seek to give God the first fruits and the best fruits of our lives. This is why Lisa and I tithe off of every dollar we earn, top 10%. Why? It's because of God's greatness. Now, we have an ongoing discussion today about tithe and generous giving, and and I know I agree with all of it, actually. I think the tithe is the beginning of generous giving. Like when I go to a restaurant, right? We did that this week. You know where the tithing part at the bottom, or the giving part at the bottom began? The, the tip? 18%. 20, 20. Which of those do you want to give? 18, 20, 25. That was not that much of a choice. Well, if I'm going to be generous, I'm going to be way above 10%. But let me give you a passage that has been on my heart for years. And it's interesting because it's where the tithe is mentioned in the New Testament. Two places in the New Testament we have this. Hebrews 7. If you have your Bibles, hold your finger in Malachi. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And I want to read for you just a few of the verses because in this passage, which the whole book of Hebrews is, Jesus is greater than, right? So it's a great place to mirror Malachi. We have the author describing how Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Okay, and it gives this story of this Old Testament guy who's described in the Old Testament as having no beginning and no end, no father or mother, no genealogy, eternally existing, which I think actually is Jesus pre-incarnate, and how Abraham comes back after rescuing Lot and gives him a tenth of all of the spoil, gives it to Melchizedek. Notice in uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews, and we'll start at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute. The inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. He has no beginning or end, he says about this Melchizedek. Go down to verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis 
of that legal requirement concerning bodily descent from Levi, being in that tribe, but by the power of an indestructible life. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus here, who has this indestructible life. Go to verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. They were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, I tithe because Jesus Christ is great, eternal, immortal, and worthy of my devotion and worship. In fact, he deserves more generous giving and devotion. And I can't read the rest of my writing. So. <laughs> Jesus is our high priest. He gives us all of these things, draws us near to God, because he always lives. And this is why for my wife and I, and I know your practice may be different, but I want to explain why we do this. This is why it's important for us. Malachi wraps up his thoughts in verses 11 through 14 by ruminating about this very thing, how great God is. Notice what he says in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, he uses that phrase, Lord of hosts, 24 times in Malachi in these short chapters. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. He goes back to this again. And its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So he says to these Jewish people, there is a time coming, second coming, millennial kingdom, when all the world will recognize globally my greatness as a king. And that alone should cause us to love, admire, and worship him well here and now. These were folks who were weary of worship. They were tired of the routine. They sniffed at the regularity and demands of it. And it was because they had forgotten the greatness of God. I'd like to wrap up with two quotes, and then we're going to take some time in personal reflective prayer. G. Campbell Morgan talks about forgetting the greatness of God. And he says, the death of love, remember the first part of this chapter, I have loved you, how have you loved me? The death of love issues in callousness. Think how surprising a thing it is that when the last prophet came with his message, I have loved you, says Jehovah, the people answered, wherein have you loved us? That is the inspiration of all sin. And when we consider it and wonder at it, we have no astonishment at all at the other charges which Malachi brought against these people. The hour in which we cease to love God is the hour in which we begin to wonder whether God loves us. 
And then form is robbed of power. And form without power is not only useless, it is paralysis, blight, mildew. And when the matchless music of the divine love is declared by the messenger of love, the formal religionists will say, wherein have you loved me? Pastor David Egner, this is the final quote for this morning, wraps up this section in his preaching about Malachi, and I like what he has to say. He says in Malachi 1.10, God says, I have no pleasure in you. This was the Lord's stinging rebuke to his people. God was angry with their careless, shoddy methods of worship. The animals they brought for sacrifice were not acceptable because they weren't the best of the herds and flocks. Instead, they were offered stolen, lame, and sick animals. He says, while we may not be showing this degree of contempt toward God, sometimes we are too casual in our worship. A friend of mine made this observation about herself. She said, when I shop for simple things like soap or butter, I hardly think about it. But when I'm looking for a blouse to match a skirt, I shop very carefully. I go from store to store until I find exactly what I'm looking for. Then she added thoughtfully, hmm, I should pay that same attention when I am worshiping God. But sometimes I approach him as casually as if I were shopping for a box of Kleenex. During worship services in our churches, he says, we may fail to give God our full attention. We rush in late. Our thoughts may wander. We need to discipline our minds so that we are not only focusing on, yes, we are not focusing on yesterday's cares or tomorrow's responsibilities. When we worship the Lord with all of our heart and sacrifice by giving our very best, best gifts, he is pleased with us and gracious toward us. Would you take a moment and bow your heads? And let's reflectively just take what, what God has said to Malachi, to his people, and to us, and let's think about it. So let's begin with reflection. Have you grown weary of God and the worship of him? Has his past deeds slipped your mind and failed to engage your gratitude? Has the reality of the second coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords seemed too unreal, too distant to be relevant to your life today? Where are your thoughts about God? Take a moment and just reflect. Mm -hmm. 